If you turn in your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 13 is what we'll be looking at today. Paul is starting into a new section of his letter here to address a controversy over whether we can eat food sacrificed to idols. And so I know what you're thinking. Well, that's, that's exactly what I've been wondering about. I, I've been stewing over that all, all week long and maybe even longer and I'm in debates over this all the time. And, and I know perhaps not. Um, and thankfully, it's, it's not a controversy in the church like it once was. Uh, but I think as we get into Paul's analysis of what underlies this debate, we'll find it immediately relevant. And, um, and that's really his focus here. And so let's listen closely to what he has to say. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 13. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence in that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven and are on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do, but take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so, by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. The brother for whom Christ died, thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. So ask the Lord to bless His Word. Dear Almighty God, Lord, we thank You for calling Your people here today to worship You, to hear from You. We pray, Lord, that You would encourage us today, that You would shape our minds and hearts after You today. Pray, Lord, that You would be gracious to us. We come from so many different places and other things on our minds. And so, Lord, we pray that You, by Your Holy Spirit, would make us to comprehend Your message for us now. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Have you ever been in a disagreement with another Christian? The answer is yes, we all have. Um, and perhaps you're maybe even in the midst of one right now. In general, I know from my own experience, these are not things that I look forward to and um, that I'm greatly relieved when they've passed. They're, they're not fun. Seem to ignite all kinds of emotions, sadness, fear, defensiveness, pain. 
What I'd like us to think about is what's going on inside of us when we get into these conflicts. That's what Paul is probing into in Corinth. And so, what's going on there? Well, at a top level, there are two groups that have come to realize that they differ on something that they they both feel is quite important and at the same time, relatively peripheral. That's just to point out that that subject matter matters. Not all disagreements are, are the same. This particular disagreement isn't over a matter of heresy, something Paul would probably have handled differently, nor a matter of overt intentional sin like an offense. For instance, when he was confronted with a man uh, who was continuing in his practice of incest. But, but what each person has been convinced in his own mind is right before the Lord. And so then what's that issue? Well, for one group who is distinguished by their claim that they have knowledge, it's that, they, it's that we can eat food which has been offered to idols or sacrificed to idols. And for the other, it's that we can't. It's just a normal disagreement in that sense. And so the solution is normal, right? You work it out. Well, they've no doubt tried that already. The problem is it's not working out. And you've probably been there as well. And so the more knowledgeable group, out of its frustration with the others, unwillingness to embrace this freedom, are resorting to more drastic measures. And you've also probably tried that as a means to convince their opponents of what they believe to be true. They appear to be exercising their freedom right in front of them. They appear to maybe even be compelling these other brothers, to follow them in it, to join them in it. But even after all this, these less knowledgeable men are still stuck. And so the freedom group has taken upon itself to write Paul and ask him for an apostolic declaration of sorts of who's right. And so how does Paul respond? Well, neither how the stronger group or likely ourselves would have expected. He begins first with where we're supposed to start with these debates, Second, with who's really right. And third, with how we're supposed to handle that. And so let's look at these in turn. First, where are we supposed to start these debates? I wonder if you've ever thought about that before. Where we start. I don't think we normally do. It's because it doesn't really need any thought in our own minds. Uh, we, if we get into a disagreement, it seems almost intuitive, perhaps you could say even instinctive, that the way this thing gets resolved is by identifying who's right. And as a result, we find ourselves, when we get there, uh, going after that with laser focus. Who's right is like the entire lens, the whole thing, the screen that we look at to evaluate all data. And we investigate it with a vengeance for that purpose. But very interestingly here, that's not where Paul begins. And that's even when, by virtue of the Holy Spirit's inspiration, he already knows who's right. And that, and that means he's not starting with who's right because he doesn't know yet and he needs to figure it out, but, but he's, he's starting someplace else because there's someplace else that's more important than who's right. And so what is that? Well, After saying, verse 1, now concerning food offered to idols, and right there, that's where we would have expected the answer. But Paul stops short, and he takes us on quite a significant detour. He says, we know that all of us possess knowledge. 
It's a surprising turn, firstly, because um, that's not the answer they were looking for. They asked him the question. This is supposed to be the answer. He introduced it properly, and then bam. But, but second, Paul seems to be quoting the more, what, a phrase that the more knowledgeable group used in their letter to him. It's in quotes in your, in your Bible there. And normally, as recipients, we would receive that as a good sign. It's like Paul liked what they said, and so he's taking that up and then corroborating their justification. He says, I'm with you. And that's no doubt what they were hoping for. They meant the all in their reference to refer to Paul and themselves. We all, you know, us, we have knowledge. The problem is Paul's using it to refer to a still wider group. He's, he's using it to refer to Paul, those guys, the more knowledgeable Christians, and their ignorant opponents. And in that, he's getting at one of the most basic problems with how we start these debates. It's with that presupposition, presupposition of intellectual superiority. We've been there too, right? Since, since the reason we disagree is a pure matter of knowledge, and since we're right and they're wrong then we must be smarter than they are. It means the real solution to our disagreement isn't so, so much some mutual discovery of, of what's right, but our ignorant and probably stubborn, perhaps obstinate opponents' refusal to admit that we are right. And as a result, our disagreements tend towards a certain toxicity. And so Paul continues most appropriately with these words. He says, this knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. In other words, your over-narrowing of the disagreement to knowledge alone is distorting how you see yourselves and your brothers. It's taking you down the road of elitism, arrogance, oppression even. But where we're supposed to go is the opposite. It's love and service care, the kind of care and, and love that promotes the encouragement, maturation, and fruitfulness of our brother. And so to that end, Paul makes two course corrections. First, verse 2, he says, if anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. In other words, check yourself, or you could put it, humble yourself. You don't actually know as much as you think you know, and you don't know it as well either. In second, verse 3, Paul says, But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. And that means the person on the other end of our disagreement isn't our enemy, but this person is our brother or sister in Christ. Just like us, they too, they love the Lord and they are loved by the Lord. And that's the key to starting these disagreements right. It's, it's humility for us and it's love for them. And so having reset the foundation, as it were, Paul returns to answer their question now. Point two, who's right? He says, verse four through six, therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, taking it back up, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father from whom are, are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Now on the surface, there's perhaps a little bit of confusion about the middle part, okay? But that's not really the point. The point is, 
Um, there's no God but one. And all things are from that one God and through our one Lord Jesus Christ. The concern then about food sacrificed to idols should be null and void. I mean, the idols don't exist. The other gods, the other lords, they, they don't exist. We're free to eat. Paul clarifies this further in verse 8. He says, food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. That's the answer. And so the ones who claimed they had knowledge, they really did. They're right. And yet they're also wrong. Even within his explanation of what's right, Paul is turning these more knowledgeable brothers back on themselves to think about what they're doing with their knowledge. You see, Paul's clincher proof text in verse 6 isn't just a justification for what's right, but it's a rebuke and corrective for what's wrong, what they're doing with their knowledge. We can see that and how closely it resembles God's rebuke of Israel's priests in Malachi. This is nowhere, no doubt where Paul is pulling from. There God says, chapter 2 of Malachi, verse 7 through 10, For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. All good. But Malachi doesn't stop there. He says, but you, the priests who have knowledge, have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble. Very similar to Paul's language that he's going to get to soon. By your instruction. In other words, you've caused people to stumble by your instruction, by the way you have used your knowledge. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And, and so I make you despised and abased before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. And then he gets to the corrective. He says, have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? And so maybe you can see what what Paul is insinuating here. Even though these priests have true knowledge, i.e. they're right, they're applying it with partiality. Instead of using it to build up the people of God, they're using it to legitimize their own preferences. They're not acting like messengers of the Lord for the Lord, but self-aggrandized. Okay? They're self-promoting themselves okay, and oppressing the people. And these more knowledgeable Corinthians are doing the same. And so Paul, like Malachi before them, confronts them with the singular unity of our God. As Malachi puts it again, he says, Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? And the sense is, how can we use the knowledge of the one God to demean and divide his one people? The point of knowledge isn't to win something for you, a gold star or a crown or something like that, but, but to build up the people of God. To build up the people of God unto the one God and Father for whom are all things and for whom we exist and the one Lord, Jesus Christ, from whom are all things and through whom we exist. Or to put it even more simply, the point of knowledge isn't for us, our agenda, and our glory, but for Him, His agenda, and His glory. Which is again unto the end of building up His people unto Him. And so how do we do that? Point three how to handle our knowledge. 
Well, it begins here with trying to understand exactly where our brother is coming from. So often we miss that step, don't we? Uh, We know where we're coming from, and so we move directly into communicating where we're coming from. But Paul stops. He says in verse 7, Paul Paul says, however, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. And this tells us something about our difference. Our difference, in this case, isn't a result of a deficiency in their intellect, which we might just handle by a, by a pure re-education program, right? I know the right answer, let me communicate that to you, and then, and then we'll be on the same page. Well, here, it's not a deficiency in their intellect, but their conscience. Paul says their conscience is weak. And by that, he means it is either misinformed, i.e. It, it does not know the truth, okay? It doesn't intellectually grasp it, or It's ill-informed. He has yet to assent to that truth. And as a result, this isn't a mere hunt for who's really got the right answer or a clash of ideas, but but a deeply held, conscience-bound moral that they differ on. And therefore, Paul tells us that a premature resolution will bring consequences. If this person acts out against his conscience, even in, say, eating food, sacrificed idols, which, which Paul has asserted that we're free to do. We have, we have liberty from the Lord to eat. This person will defile his conscience and be guilty of sin. As he puts it, he's eating this food as really offered to an idol. He's, he's really participating in idolatry. It'd be like if you saw some money, say, sitting on a counter, and your conscience told you, you know, that's not mine. I probably shouldn't take that. And yet you decided, well, I'm going to take it anyway, right? And then a little time later, someone tells you that they left some money for you on a counter, okay? That money's yours. It belonged to you the whole time. And and so it's not technically or objectively speaking theft. And yet subjectively, it is theft. For you, in that moment, when you took it over against your conscience, it was stealing. And as a result, you sinned against the Lord and you've wounded your conscience. That's what these weaker Corinthians are wrestling with. They've they've listened to the arguments of the more knowledgeable group, but it still feels like sin to them. Whether because of their background or whatever, that feels like sin. And so to go over against that, it's sin. And so what does that mean for how we deal with them? Well, Paul urges us to exercise caution. He says, verse 9 through 11, Take care that this right of yours, the right to eat food sacrificed to idols, does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so, by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. In other words, even when our actions are in accordance with the truth, they can do so much damage to our brother who has yet to assent to that truth that we can become a stumbling block to his faith and perhaps even an impetus to his ultimate falling away and destruction. And in hearing that, 
It sounds extreme, doesn't it? And yet Paul takes pains to go even further. He makes these potential consequences all the more explicit. In verse 12 he says, Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. So let me ask you, did you realize that you could do so much damage, so much damage to your brother and even to Christ by merely exercising your rights? I doubt it. And me too. And so what are we missing well, in part, it's, it's the weight of our brother's conscience. Now, conscience is a difficult subject. Uh, when uh, one of the best systematic theologians of the church, Herman Bovink, happens to be a Dutch man, um, that's not why he's one of the best systematic theologians necessarily, but, but an incredible theologian, he's asked about this issue. And he begins, first sentence, with, this is an incredibly difficult issue. All right? And at the same time, how important it is. Even in this short passage, we can see the same. Even though our conscience is neither infallible, it errs. Even though our conscience is not omniscient, it, it knows all things. And even though our conscience is not synonymous with the voice of the Lord, it is still of an incredible weight to the Lord. And so Why? Well, for at least two reasons. One, it's an ordinary means that the Lord uses to direct His people in the way they should go. And two, it appears here that it's so tightly connected to our own person and the Lord that to wound one is to wound the other. And therefore, in matters of conscience, we need to be very careful that we give one another and ourselves proper respect and space to ignore our own conscience or to steamroll, manipulate, bind another's is tantamount to snuffing out the voice of the Lord and leading our brother into sin. And therefore, Paul concludes with verse 13, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. Think about what he's saying there. Um, if what I know to be true by my conscience will harm my brothers, I may very well withhold it and constrain my own rights to it up until forever in order to protect my brother. And that even if his conscience is in error as it is here. And so what do we do with this? Well, I think it's safe to admit that this is hard. The conscience is... Uh, particularly something that requires sensitivity, wisdom. And at the same time, there is a whole strata here that seems beyond our comprehension. It, it just doesn't compute. For example, uh, the idea of, of conscience notwithstanding, why in the world do I have to suffer for their weakness? Why on earth do I have to withhold what I know to be true and sacrifice my rights for the sake of the one who has some catching up to do? You know? the, the way we think about that is, um, well, shouldn't it be the other way around? It doesn't seem fair. It doesn't seem right. Well, the reason it doesn't is because we don't always see knowledge or our brothers the way that the Lord does. For us, knowledge... Um, 
I hope this will make sense. Uh, knowledge is like the holy grail. Uh, there's even a number of uh, recently made movies that sort of uh, get at this idea. Maybe you've noticed that treasure hunters and space explorers are not so much finding um, unspeakable wealth, um, uh, an elixir for eternal youth, but a treasure trove of knowledge about the universe. That's the answer, right? And this points to this conscious or subconscious idea, pun intended, okay, um, that knowledge is king. Knowledge is the true measure of a man, and it's all that matters. And to be fair, and to use some, some bad English, um, knowledge ain't nothing, right? Okay? It's an ultra-important commodity in the world and the Bible. It's Paul, remember, after all, who, who commands us to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And he means that with respect to knowledge. We're to be transformed by the apprehension of true knowledge. It's also Paul who envisions our maturation in Christ as one that corresponds to an increasing apprehension of true knowledge. That's what maturity shows, is increasing apprehension of true knowledge. And so what else are we missing? What we're missing is our distortion. While knowledge isn't nothing, it, it isn't everything, and it's not even the most important thing. What Paul's pointing out here is, is the idol of the mind and the proud and, and self-centered hearts that stand behind it. And that's what we need to take away from this. Well, knowledge is important and we should strive, all of us, to mature in the right apprehension of it. We and our brothers are more than what we know. We are more than what we know. And so just think back again to what happens when you hit that disagreement. First, the alarms go off, the defenses come up, the weapons come out, we're under attack, we're ready to attack back, and in that process, we shrink their whole person down to the size and accuracy of their brain alone. And that brain happens to be at odds with ours, and it's wrong. Whatever we had in common with our brother is replaced then by what we don't. And for all intents and purposes, that brother is now our enemy. And so our hearts quite naturally and justifiably move away from care for that person to care for me, defense of me, and winning for me. And thereby we become cold and critical. We're looking for where is the difference. That's all that matters. I've got to find that, undermine that. And we, we can even get cruel. Now, I'd ask you, have you been there? And, and I know the answer. We all go there. It's ugly, ugly stuff. And that's, that's what's going on here with the Corinthian elite. It's, it's where we go. And then often we, we don't stay there because we can go further, right? We go to darker places still. We move from there to parties and cliques and um, gossip, slander. Our brother can't be right. And so we become altogether critical Christians, and we revel in how much smarter we are than they are, and what we've discovered and what they haven't. And so how do we do this better? Well, by going to the same place that Paul took us at the beginning and the end, love. The idol of the mind puffs up and it tears down, but love builds up. Love needs to become the motivating and framing force behind our knowledge. 
And the only way that happens is we begin to see Christ. That's where Paul points the Corinthians again and again here. These brothers with whom they're so frustrated that they'd almost wish were gone altogether, that they need Paul to, to give that apostolic declaration of, you're right, they're wrong, condemn them, uh, you're right. The, these brothers, Paul says, says are, are known by God, they're loved by God, and they're the ones for whom Christ died. That's who they can't see. It's Christ. And until they do, what they have are just two angry guys in an arena. And so may the best gladiators win, right? And we might encourage them to it. We, we like a good debate, right? But seeing Christ changes everything. Just think about how our Heavenly Father deals with your intellectual deficiencies and His disagreements with you. Even though he knows what's right 100% of the time and where we're wrong 100% of the time, he doesn't treat us with either the instant justice that he has the power to deliver or that we deserve. There's no lightning bolt of death after the fall, and, and normally there isn't one waiting for us around every corner either. As the Psalms put it, uh, many of these struggling and inspired saints, our Lord is long-suffering. His love endures forever. He is patient and kind and gentle. He bears with the weak. He picks them up when they fall. He protects them. He provides for them. He gently nurtures them along in their incremental growth in knowledge and obedience. It's like a shepherd with his sheep and a father with his children. And so why? Well, we know why. It's because of Christ. That's who stands in the lens between our Heavenly Father and us. The one who bore all our sins, past, present, future, of commission and omission, of ignorance and intention. And he's the one who stands in the lens between Paul and his brother Corinthians. Even after all the things they've done to Paul. And he's the one who should stand between them and their brothers and us and ours. Christ is the big deal that's missing from our view here. And he changes everything. And so... Is Christ standing in the lens between you and your brothers and sisters? As he does, that cold and critical spirit that tends to infect our disagreements will warm and soften. We won't be so easily overcome by the frustration and the aggravation and the, what seems like natural hostility that belongs to an enemy but the patience and gentleness and kindness that belongs to a fellow saint a fellow saint for whom Christ was pleased to die and save. A fellow saint for whom Christ was pleased to place in the path of your life. A fellow saint with whom on that someday soon we will enjoy perfect and eternal communion with. That saint. And so Christ is the reality that needs to shape and reshape our disagreements with our brothers and sisters. It's not first who's right, but Who's who? This person that we're at odds with is not our enemy, but the brother for whom Christ died. And that makes loving them, even patiently bearing with them through hard places, even when we're right and they're wrong, right? Makes it make all the sense in the world. Amen? Let's pray. Dear Almighty God, 
You know that uh, so oftentimes conflict and disagreements with our brothers and sisters, with our spouses, with our children, it seems to bring out all our demons, all our, all our self-centered pride, our arrogance, that critical heart. There is no humility there, Lord. There is no grace. There is no Christ. And so, Lord, we confess it to you. And we ask that as we trust in Christ, Lord, you would, you would do that work of making us to see Christ. Not just his work in our own life, Lord, but his work in others and the Christ who has borne all our sins and theirs, who stands in between us and who stands for us. And Lord, I pray that as we see Christ more and the love that we have for Christ, I pray, Lord, that that would would overflow to our brothers and sisters. And even when we struggle with one another and we are at odds with one another, that 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 would that would change how we do that. So that it's not a battle between gladiators, Lord, but um, a working through discussion between brothers and sisters in the family of God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.